So in chapter um, 4, we kind of, we, we see that in 5, the emphasis is really on the worthiness of the Lamb to be the one to break the seals and start the end of history, to start the end of the current age we're in, to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. That this lamb that we're going to see that's like a lion, but he's also a lion like a lamb, that you're going to see that he has all authority to pull this off. And so the emphasis in chapter 5 is very much on Jesus, very much on who he is and what he's capable of, what he's done, and what he's going to do. There's also uh, a very Trinitarian, you get to see um, the Holy Trinity put on display as well in three different, the last of three different hymns. It's found in chapter 5, but really it continues in the the story of the Lamb seen through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and into Revelation. That the, the story of the scapegoat, the story of the sacrificial lamb, the story of sacrifice before God, that there is something powerful about knowing our, the depth of our sin and then grieving our sin before a holy God and then knowing that there must be payment for that sin to a holy God. In the Old Testament, we saw it as the sacrificial lamb. In the New Testament, we see it as Jesus coming as that sacrificial lamb. Then we get to see redemption on display and what that kind of power looks like here in chapter 5. So if we put 4 and 5 together, we see in 4, God the Father and all of creation. And then we look at chapter 5 and we get to see God the Son and the redemption that he brings. So that's why it's it's good to put them together, but it's also good to separate them. Um, I think it's pretty powerful to sit down and read all of four and all of five together in one setting and just have it all just wash over you. Like if you're in a spot where you feel like, I don't really feel like I, I got a lot to give to the Lord in worship. I don't really know why I should worship this God. I've got a lot going on in my life personally, a lot going on health-wise. A lot of things are kind of weighing on me. I, I think it'd be a, it's a good practice to jump into four and five. And you get to see how all of creation worships at the feet of God, swirls around the throne, The worship song changes to worship of the Lamb. It's amazing. Just amazing. But you put four and five together and we get to see this complete story. That the thrust of these two chapters are really about creation and redemption and that God is sovereign over everything. That he's sovereign over it all. That everything that happens on this planet is under the sovereign hand of God. Now, that brings up some questions sometimes. Well, what about this and this and bad things and these things happen and that happened and I don't know. And it's all under the sovereign hand of God. And I think if we get a better picture of worship of the Lamb, then we can see that all the stuff, even the bad stuff that comes our way, should still turn us to worship. That there's a bigger story outside of ourselves and our own issues and our own lives that's at play. That when we get 80, 90, 100 and some years on this planet, that's a fraction of what eternity is going to be like. A fraction. And that can turn us to praise. Tozer, who he's often quoted and hardly ever read, which is pretty funny in Christian circles. Everybody loves the Tozer quotes, but the people don't go read his books, which you should read his books. They're pretty good. Um, Worship is the missing jewel in modern evangelicalism. That we, and I'm guilty of this, very guilty. I love theology, I love reading the Bible, I love archaeology, I love the biblical geography, I love all of that stuff. I love to learn more, I love to know more, I love, I, I'm a nerd, I love it. 
But if that doesn't turn my heart to praise, it's kind of silly. It's kind of silly to be filled with all this knowledge and all this stuff, and I can argue with the best of them. I can point things out. I know how to work Bible software really well. I know how to find things. I'm pretty good at the Google. I can find things that way too. But if it doesn't turn my heart to worship, it doesn't turn me into a worshiper of Christ and instead just wants to be, I just want to know stuff, then I'm just a Pharisee. But it should turn us to worship. And that's what we see here in chapter 5. Everything turns to worship. Everything leads to worship. Everything leads to a grieving of sin and a thankfulness before a holy God who's going to pull away what we deserve and instead give us himself forever. So, if we start in chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So you get this, we got to start with this picture. You have him, right? Hand of him who is seated on the throne. Who is him? God the Father, sitting on his throne with the seal. Or with a scroll with seven seals. We're going to see the breaking of the seals in coming weeks. But he has this scroll that has seven seals on it. And it's written on the front and the back. Now, most scrolls are not written on the front and back. It's not how you, if you come across a piece of parchment, whether it's a Dead Sea scroll, scrolls of scripture, you don't write on the back side. You write on the front. That's all you write on. You roll it up, and the back side is blank. Ink leaks, it bleeds, it becomes a mess. You know, sometimes... It's pretty funny. Some of the, you know, our Bibles are pretty thin. When you hold them up to light, you can see both sides. That gets pretty confusing sometimes if it's really leaking through. So the fact that it's a scroll written on the front and the back with seven seals that have to be broken. I mean, usually just seal. Has anybody ever sealed a letter with wax? Yeah. It's I, Every now and then, like a company or somebody will send me something that has not just, now the modern version is the sticker. Give the sticker seal because then it looks like it's a wax seal because that's all fancy. But you break out a real wax, you heat wax with a candle, you put a little press of it, you put it, that takes some effort. But if that seal is broken, it can never be put back. That's the point of a sealed letter. Well, to have seven seals on any letter is an indication of a couple things. One, seven is a letter of perfection, correct? All throughout the scriptures, especially in Revelation. So you have this. The sealed scroll with seven seals gives us a symbol of perfection, but it's also written front and back, which is unique. So this scroll is going to be the, the recorded history of the story of God as it's unfolded to its end. It needs a lot of room for the story of God to be honest. It needs a lot of room for that to happen. And so as you break the seven seals and you have front and back, that's, that's very unique. People reading this would have been going, what? Front and back, seven seals, that's a little overkill. So you have this scroll that has the history of humanity, the history of God, the story of his gospel, all on this scroll, and the, the culmination of history, what's about to happen, that's coming to a close, the great crescendo of the human experience leading to the new heaven, the new earth, on this scroll that's sitting in the right hand of God the Father. And when these seals are broken, it's going to be that the story's coming to an end until the new heaven, new earth, and then we'll be learning all about 
God and all he has done for eternity. And so a strong angel says, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who's worthy to put an end to this part of the story of God and usher in the new heaven and new earth? Who's the one? Who's the one? This divine announcement is supposed to come to fruition. Then we see John ready to weep. Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep, oh sorry, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. He starts to weep. He wants the end. Have you ever, we'll see this in a second too, but have you ever been in such a dark place you just want it to stop? Whether it's grief, pain, abuse, war, tension in relationships, in marriages, in family strife, in work. Have you just ever been to your wit's end where you just want it to be done and you're moved to tears? I want this over. I want it done. I want it Think of all that Paul, or, sorry, all that John has witnessed as a disciple, and then put his life experience, see all of the disciples but him die. He saw the one whom he loved in Jesus die on the cross, buried, resurrected, and he's waiting. He wants to see Jesus again. He wants this to come back. He wants it all to end. Think of all the per- the Christian persecution he witnessed. Think of all that, the Roman Empire. Think walking as a disciple amongst the Roman Empire around Galilee, around all, and seeing people on crosses, people being abused. People, just think of all that he witnessed, all that he went through, all the, the pain and destruction he went through, and he's seeing this point, this opportunity. If that's, those seals are broken, that scroll is red, it's all over, the pain's gone, Jesus comes back, new heaven, new earth, it's all made right again. It's right there. Think if you had the cure for any disease, the one that took out your family, the one that took out the people you love. Think if you could end, you could stop the genocide. You could, it could all just end if someone would just open the scroll. And it moves into weep. No one is strong enough. No one's worthy. No one has the power is good enough to do this. Then, then, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Weep no more. The lion of Ju- the tribe of Judah from Genesis, it's in chapter 49, the root of David from Isaiah 11. He, it, it, he's coming. He's coming, the line of Judah, Jesus, the Messiah. He's coming. Now, all of us would go, pretty cool. No, we wouldn't. We'd scream, yeah, here he comes. Now, what's the expectation that we're going to see? A strong angel says no one is, who's going to open it? John sees no one worthy. We expect like gladiator kind of arms, buff. Arnold, before he stopped using things, like muscled, huge, 
walking in. He's going to conquer like the biggest uh, Viking or Scottish Bravehearty, whoever you want it to call, is going to come in and take this scroll and break it open. And the elder says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, connecting back to the Old Testament prophecies, connecting back to the family of David, back to the genealogies we skip over, especially beginning in Matthew. Like we, we kind of skip past all these. That this is who's coming. The lion is coming. Think Narnia times a million. It's coming. The lion's coming. And we would all expect to see this conquering giant of a man to come walking in. But instead, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Pretty significant. The sacrificial lamb is standing, which is an indication of resurrection. It's an indication of not being slain anymore. As though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. These are pictures of perfection in the seven, but the horns is a, a picture of omnipotence. All strength, all power, all... But then the eyes are omnipresent. I'm going to get them all wrong. The omni. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all... So this isn't just a lamb who was slain as a sacrifice. This is a holy lamb who has the power of God. This is Jesus. God in flesh. God the Son. Showing up in perfection with strength and wisdom. Now, I don't know what he will look like, or what the picture that John saw, but he's expecting the line of Judah, and instead you have the slain lamb who's standing. Does Jesus still have the holes in his hands? Does he still have blood trickling down, kind of stained? I don't know all that. I mean, we try to put lots of pictures and paintings of what that would look like. I have no idea. But I just see John's image. The elder says this, the lion, and he looks and he sees a slain lamb standing. It's not like what we expect. It's not like what the disciples expected in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus, the Messiah, conquering, taking over, reigning, ruling as a king over all, and he's killed on the cross. So it tells us the power to open the seals to end history as we know it culminates in sacrifice. That the son, like when this picture in Gethsemane, Jesus is there sweating drops of blood. He's in complete turmoil. He's he goes to the Father and says, "Could you take this away from me? If it's your will, let the cat let the cup pass. But if if that's not your will, then I'm ready to go in." And God the Father, you're going to have to suffer. Not because of divine child abuse, as an atheist would like to say, but because without the sacrifice of the lamb, the seals could not be broken. Sin requires payment. You can't just negotiate a surrender with God. It's not just, it's, 
the Civil War ended at Appomattox Courthouse, right? Where you have the negotiated treaty between two sides, right? And it seems like sometimes that fight is still going on in some parts of the, the South. It seems like there's still that, that disagreement. This is not a negotiated surrender. This is payment to be made. Complete, total capitulation to the will of God. Jesus must be slain like a lamb. Must be slain. There has to be payment for the sins that have been committed to dishonor God and His glory. So when this lamb who's been slain is standing, and we get the seven horns and seven eyes with power and authority, and you get the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, sent out to the earth. He went out and took the scroll from the right. Like, so you have this, you think strength, power, Viking, and you see beaten, bruised, slain. And what walks up and grabs the authority out of the hand of God, the Father, is this slain lamb. You get this picture of the Trinity. God the Father on the throne, the seven spirits of the Holy Spirit, a picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, God the Son, comes up, grabs the scroll. You get, there's one throne, three are sitting on, and they all culminate in this one moment. And Jesus grabs the scroll. I don't have much to say about that. If that doesn't move you, then we need to up the caffeine doses, I think. God, the Son, takes the scroll. He was slaughtered. He was slain. He was beaten. But he was resurrected in power. This is an artist's attempt. Um, and they're just vague attempts. I don't like it. If I was good at Photoshop, I would have added, like, blood and other things and made it a little more black eye kind of stuff. I don't, know what, I don't know what God the Son looked like in this moment. I know when he appeared to the disciples, he had the wound. It's how he identified himself. It's how he, does he have his resurrection body at this moment? I don't, I don't, does he have his perfection? Is he in it all? I don't know. All I know is that John sees, he weeps when no one can take the, he expects the line of Judah, the, length, the, the, the power of God to show up, and the power of God showed up in sacrifice. Power of God showed up in a sacrificial lamb with all holiness and all power. And he grabs the scroll. He has the authority to take it. I like to think that he's just shoving people out. He's all bruised. Like, I've been in this fight. It's the tenth round of the fight. You know, it's, it's Rocky and Drago, and we're going out, and it's happening. And he walks up, and he just grabs the scroll. We're ending this. And then worship explodes. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. doesn't say lion. Fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, there's lots of conjecture over what this is, what is in the bowl, the incense, the prayers of the saints. What I like to, because of John, it seems logical, and a couple commentarian people agree with me. 
or I agree with whichever. I mean, I'm, it's, they agree with me. Um, that when you see the prayers of the saints being offered up as offering before the Lord and burnt as a fragrant offering to the Lord, think of all of the tears wept over pain and sacrifice. Think of all the pleadings that are done in prayer for people's salvation, for people to, to be fixed and changed and healed and for governments to not be corrupt and for abuse to stop. Like Think of all the tears and the pain shed crying out to God and they're given as a fragrant offering in this moment because everything's being reconciled. That there isn't a tear shed that God doesn't know of. Even though he might not act as we want him to in those moments, none of it goes without him knowing. And I know in our 80 to 100 years or so on this earth, it seems a bit, where are you, God? Why aren't you? Why don't you? I want you to do this. I want you. When you look at the grand picture of God's glory and what's happening throughout this scroll written on front and back of the story of everything that's happened, it's small in comparison to the eternity that's being unveiled before the Father. That his sovereign will is for his glory to be known more than it is for your happiness and your lack of pain. Now that's a tough pill to swallow sometimes. It really is. I, I don't, I've wept myself. I've been in rooms where people are weeping in the most tragic times of their lives. And I often have no words. What's, what's going to compare? I'm not going to read this to them. You're crying now because of this, but it will once be a fragrant. That's a horrible way to love people. But it doesn't change the fact that it's true. It's the truth. He doesn't miss any of our pain. And those prayers will be offered before, before the Father. So you see the angels and the saints. They sing a song. It's a new song. You remember from last week? Worthy are you, are, from verse 11, worthy are you, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Um, I know we've talked before, and I'm sure Cole probably mentioned this, that when we talk before, when you see something twice, in the Bible, like repeat, especially Paul, he repeats things like, hey, you should pay attention. When you see it three times, that's a sign of super importance. That's a super holiness. And so then we switch over here to verse 9 in chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seal. So the worship is to the Lord God Almighty, God the Father in chapter 4, and then the worship shifts to the Lamb. The worship shifts to the Son. The worship shifts to the sacrifice. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Not only did he sacrifice and take away the sin of the world, all it would call in his name, but he also brings us in as partners, as family members in the ministry. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. So who are the holiest people in Hebrew times? The priests. And he, this is John saying through his vision from Jesus 
that in Jesus' sacrifice, all who would profess a faith in him are as holy as the holiest people around. I know a lot of you, and you're not that holy. And neither am I. So it means emphatically that a relationship with Jesus because of his sacrifice, sorry, it's over here now, his sacrifice on the cross, we are saints. We're holy ones because of his sacrifice. Not your effort, not what you tried, not what you attempted, not what, because of his sacrifice on the cross, you are holy. And that's the only reason. You don't have to try every day to be better. You're holy because of the cross. And this new song of worship in heaven by the angels and the saints, it all shifts to say, the lamb who was slain and those who would call on his name are saints. That's hymn number one. We see three here. Um, the first is from the saints. The second is sung by the angels. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. Um, we can just say that that's a lot. Myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands is a lot. Make sense? This, this is like saying all of heaven opened up into this worship. So it starts off with worship from the saints and it turns to the angels. The saints are worshiping, then the angels worship. I don't know what that exact number is, but it's a lot. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is a, this is a resounding like bell to the holiness of the Lamb. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. The angels are proclaiming that this is God in flesh. This is God the Son. The angels say he has all authority, all power, all honor, all blessing. He is God. Not just a rebellious son like Prometheus in Greek mythology that steals fire and goes off and does something crazy. This is, this is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, very Trinitarian, one God existing in three expressions. Amazing. So the angels say you have all power. You are the one. You are the one. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying it goes from the saints, those who have gone before and died, those who are in heaven are singing to the angels acknowledging the power of the Lamb and then it goes to all of creation which means all of creation. Everything. All of creation. Heaven, earth, everything turns to worship the Lamb. Saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, God the Father, God the Son, Trinitarian, one. All glory and honor and might forever and ever. Forever and ever is a long time. That all of creation is singing the praise of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. That all of creation is singing this. So in this moment, in this picture, you get this picture of 
God the Father in chapter 4. You get the picture of, of God the Son in chapter 5, culminating in His holiness of 4 and everything laying out before God. And then this change to the worship of the Lamb. But there's also this connection between God the Father and God the Son. Like this isn't, a, uh, this isn't the rebels of Kronos in Greek mythology killing Him and then becoming God. This is God the Father and God the Son together on the throne being worshipped. This isn't angry God being kicked out of the throne and fun-loving hippie Jesus taking over. This is all power and might and authority existing in three distinct personalities, one God on the throne forever and ever, and all of creation screams out. And then we get our posture of worship. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Finished. Yes and amen. It's done. Amen. Stamped, sealed, signed, delivered, whatever prayer random song you want to sing. And then the elders fell down and worshipped. I'm not saying that every time we break out of the hymn or you're moved to worship, you have to fall down on your face. But have you ever been there? Where there's some moments, maybe it's not like falling on your face, maybe it's your posture of worship can be different, and all of us can be different. Standing, sitting, kneeling. Have you ever just been overwhelmed by the presence of God and been moved to do more than just sing the song or just stand there? Some people raise their hands, some people get on their knees, some people move around, some people even get a little crazy like sway left and right. Getting a little getting a little interpretive dance up here, swaying. Some people jump up and down, some people hit the mountains and are amazed and stand tall, some are brought low. But no matter how your posture of worship looks, you should be moved by the knowledge that God loves you. He loves you as an individual, he loves you in a personal way, and he has went to the cross for you and all of heaven sings praise and all of creation sings praise to this lamb who was slain. Are you moved to that kind of worship? An overwhelming thanksgivingness. An overwhelming in awe of who he is. In light of all that he is, all who he is and all that he's done are you moved to worship John Piper because Jesus is a lion like lamb and a lamb like lion tongue twister but I like it he has the right to bring the world to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people what gives Jesus the authority to take from the father the scroll and open the seals the cross it's why it's central to our faith His sacrifice on the cross for you and for me is everything. And because he wasn't just a conquering prince who's taking over, he's a sacrificial lamb who gave of himself. Like, think of every other faith out there. Every other faith out there is a misrepresentation of what's in heaven and what happened on the cross. Every other faith out there is a twisting of the truth, but has just enough 
of maybe some similarities to draw people in to its life. And at the center of almost every religion out there, other than Christianity, is a move by you to earn your salvation. Whether you pray the right prayers, you do the right things, you follow the five pillars, you follow the eightfold path and the four noble truths, you do the thing, you work real hard, you give of yourself, you you do all these things, you donate a bunch, you help a lot, you're self-sacrificial, although you put the focus on yourself because you're being self-sacrificial to the praise of self to be, right? And here stands in a stark contrast the truth of the Bible, the truth of our faith, that the God who created all, God the Son, steps out of heaven to save us because we aren't worthy to save ourselves. We can't do it. And so he allows himself to be slain. And he gives himself as a gift to everyone who would acknowledge the truth. And every other religion out there is trying to sprinkle just a little bit of this and then twist it where you're consistently focusing on self. I think it's no coincidence that the rising number of nuns, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S, people who believe in nothing, not they won't even, they don't have the guts to be atheists. In the United States right now, 25% of people polled in the United States believe in nothing. I think it's a direct correlation to the increased power of self in our culture. We worship at the altar of self. I have my own opinion. I do my own thing. I've got my own. I don't want authority. I don't want. I don't want. It's just the same twisting that's been going on for thousands of years. I will figure this out. I have the authority. I'm the one who can do it. We have, you just read in chapter 5. All of creation, heaven and the saints, turn to worship the lamb because of his sacrifice, saying, I can't do this. No one has the power. It's why we're different. It's why Christianity stands above every other religion. Because it's the truth. The truth is you can't earn this. You need Jesus to do it for you. And we humbly submit our lives to him. What else are you going to do? Worship a statue? What's that going to do for you? Nothing. The lamb went to the cross for you and for me and deserves all worship. So today, are you moved like that in worship? To be honest, for a long time, and I know I've shared this parts of this before, worship was the boring prelude to the sermon. It really was. I didn't like to sing hymns, I didn't like to sing praise music, I just wanted to be done. So I can be taught something. I love to learn. I love to fill my head full of knowledge. I love. It wasn't until I was in a room filled with a lot of people that I felt the overwhelming presence of Christ in worship. And there's days, if I'm honest, especially on a Sunday, there's some days my head's so full of things that I'm not super engaged in worship. I'm just not. But I remember the times when I've been the most distraught, the most concerned, the most fear for my daughter's life, if you've literally heard the story, fearful of making it home safe, 
when the roads are going nuts and things are going bad. I'm fearful for my children and are they following the right path? Am I leading them right? Am I a failure as a husband, which I am a lot? Am I a failure as a dad? Probably less, but still a lot. Like, am I... And I find that I always find refuge in worship. That when I, I can't think my way out of it, I can't theologian, I can't theologian my way out of it, I can't. So instead I find worship songs that are very powerful and important to me, and I turn them on, and I sing. So why is that? Because it's exactly how it's supposed to be. All of my knowledge, I know I'm saved by grace, I know my kids are saved by grace, I know my wife's saved by grace, but I get stressed and I get things that pile up. And if, if I don't move myself to worship, I can become unhinged. And this is from a guy who used to just wait for it to be over so that I could be taught something. And I find myself drawn to worship because it reminds me of God's sacrifice on the cross and it gives me hope. How often are you brought to awe in the worship of our King? I pray through Advent, I pray through the service of this church, I pray through your daily life that you'll find some avenues to worship the King who saved you. He's everything. And he loves you.